you have your Bibles, you can open up to Nehemiah chapter 6. Remember, it is in the middle of the Old Testament, Nehemiah chapter 6. The story of Nehemiah takes place at the end of the Old Testament. Uh, God's people have returned to Jerusalem. The walls have been rebuilt, and, uh, or they are in the process of being rebuilt. And, and Nehemiah's heart and his passion is to see God's people in God's city, worshiping God in the way God intended them to do. So that, that's what's taking place in Nehemiah. You'll, you'll, as we've kind of progressed through the story, we're getting uh, near the end. We've got a couple weeks left in Nehemiah, but near the end of the story, uh, today we see the wall is completed. Uh, the task is finished uh, here in Nehemiah. So let me read in Nehemiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. When the word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it. But up to that time, I had not set the doors in the gates. sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages of the plain of Ono. When they were scheming to harm me, but they were scheming to harm me, so I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave and go down to you? Four times they sent him the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time, Sanballat sent his aide to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it is true, that you and the Jews are planning to revolt, and therefore are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king, and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will go back to the king. So come, let us confer together. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. One day I went to the house of Shemaniah, son of Deliah, son of (laughs) Mahedabel, I think you've got to say that from the bottom of your throat, Mahudabel, who was shut in at his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night they are coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had sent him, but that, he had, that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me, so I would, com- I would commit a sin by doing this. And then they would give, him a ba- give me a bad name to credit, discredit me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who had been trying to intimidate me. So the wall was completed on the 20th day of the law in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this and all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence, because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the story of Nehemiah. God, a, a story, not, not just an Old Testament story, we can look back and say, you yeah, know, that's cool, but a story we can look at and, and have great implications for us as a church and us as the people of the church. So we pray that, that you would speak to us this morning, uh, that you would challenge our hearts, that you would convict us, of, of maybe sin in our life, of areas that we need to, to give to you, surrender to you. And God, we just pray that this morning you would teach us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. 
So we've been going through the book of Nehemiah, and what we've come across in chapter 4 and chapter 5 and chapter 6 is this opposition to what Nehemiah is trying to accomplish. There is, as maybe as difficult as it is to realize, that this is a theme in Scripture. You can read it, you can see it in the stories, but when people like Nehemiah pursue the things of God, chase the kingdom, pursue to be like Jesus, to follow God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, opposition arises. We can see it in our own lives, times in our life when we pursue God with everything we are, when we're passionate and excited for the things of God, opposition arises. And it seems odd because it seems like, okay, if I'm following God, if I'm doing what God has commanded me to do and asked me to do, shouldn't things go well for me? Shouldn't things be a little easier than what they are? Here's the problem. The problem is we live in a lost and broken and dying world. And because of that, when we pursue the things of God, opposition is going to arise. Things are going to come up in opposition to us. And three points I want to make in the reason that opposition comes. The first is the world. We live in a world, its system and its values that oppose the things of God. We can see that, right? We look, we can study the world, we can know the world, and the things of the world oppose the things things of God. And the Bible actually tells us, do not love the world. Do not love the world. And we're told that because what the world believes, what the world desires, is opposite of what God wants for us. So there's this conflict going on, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of this world. And so that conflict's going on. There's also the conflict of self, right? We, we know that at, at one time, before we came to know Jesus, before our lives were transformed by the gospel, before we understood who Jesus was and what he did for us on the cross, we lived differently. Colossians talks about this. Colossians talks about the old man and the new man, that there was a way in which we used to live. We used to conform to the ways of this world. We used to do the things the world used to do. But since Jesus came, I'm a new creation. I'm a new being. But there's still this battle raging, right? We know that. We understand that, that. That the self and the flesh wants to win out. The self and the flesh wants to do the things of the world. But we are told to live by the Spirit. Our small group was talking about this Thursday night, uh, the last two Thursday nights, and being challenged with this idea of living by the Spirit. That, you know, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. To have those things, to live by the Spirit. But there is a battle raging. There's a battle of living by the flesh, living by this old man, or living by the Spirit, this new man. The third thing is we have an enemy. Peter tells us, 1 Peter 5.8, it says, The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour someone. To devour someone. The reason there is opposition, the reason that when we pursue the things of God, that it doesn't always go well, is because the world rejects it, because ourself rejects it, because there is an enemy looking to devour us. J.I. Packer said this, he says, The real theme of Nehemiah 4-6 through is spiritual warfare. And Nehemiah's real opponent, lurking behind the human opponents, critics and grumblers who occupied his attention directly, was Satan, whose name means adversary, and who operates as the permanent enemy of God, God's people 
and God's praise. We think of Satan as our spiritual enemy, and so he is, but we need to realize that the reason he hates humankind and seeks our ruin is because he hates God, his and our creator. He is not a creator himself, only a destroyer. He is a fallen angel, angel, and now he seeks only to thwart God's plans, wreck his works, rob him of his glory, and in that sense, triumph over him. When God initiates something for his praise, Satan is always there trying to keep pace with him, planning ways of spoiling and frustrating the divine project. This is the reality. We, as people of God, want to pursue the things of God. We want to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We want to chase him. We, we want to be like Jesus. We want to imitate Jesus. We want to do the things that Jesus did. We want to love Jesus. We want to do things for his kingdom. We want to impact things, the, the, the world around us with the things of God. And here's the reality. The more we attempt to do that, and the bigger the impact we have, the more opposition is going to arise. We see it. Here in the life of Nehemiah, you can see it throughout Scripture. But when people pursue the things of God, there are people who oppose it. Ultimately, we know who our enemy is. It seeks to devour us. So it's important to know this, important to realize this. As we look at a guy like Nehemiah, we see it. That if we are going to choose to follow God, there's going to be opposition. There's going to be people who come up against us. And here's a, here's a challenge for us. If we look and we evaluate our own lives, we have to ask the question, am I being opposed? And, and I'm not talking about living an oppressed life, but if I can look back in my recent past, and is there opposition to what I'm doing? Is there opposition to me wanting to pursue the things of God, pursue the kingdom? And if there's not, I have to ask myself, am I really pursuing the kingdom? If there's no opposition to anything I'm doing, anything I'm saying, my life I'm living, no opposition, then am I truly pursuing the things of God? Because if you look at it, if I am pursuing Jesus, am I pursuing the kingdom of God? The world should oppose it. Our enemy, Satan, should oppose it. And there should be real opposition. And so I look at a guy like Nehemiah, and Nehemiah gives a great example that here is a guy who pursued God. Here is a guy who pursued the kingdom of God the greater good for the kingdom of God. And because of it, he faced opposition. And I love his response. And as you read through Nehemiah 4, 5, and 6, you see Nehemiah's response in the face of opposition. And it's an example that he gives us, that here's a man who loves God, who knows Scripture, and follows God in all opposition. So let's go back through and, and read this, 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 uh, this passage here in Nehemiah chapter 6. And there's three points I want to make if you happen to take notes. Three things. I'll make it easy. I like alliteration, so we'll alliterate again. The first one is discourage. The second one is discredit. And the third one is dependence. Discourage, discredit, dependence. Those are the three things we're looking at as we read through uh, Nehemiah chapter 6 here. When the word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, Though up to that time, I had not set the doors and the gates. Okay, here's what's important. Okay, they have, remember we talked about before, we've seen the picture, the temple, or uh, the walls have been built, the city's within, the temple's within. This has all been built, but there are gates. And what a gate was done is, obviously it's access points, you can get in and out, but a gate gate was also a place for fortification. So if an enemy came up against you, really the gate is where you fortify to protect the city. 
So that's not been completed. So we understand that there's still some holes. There's still a project that has not been done. It has not been completed. Okay, so that's where we're at. The wall's not been completed. His enemies are still opposing him. They still don't want to see this thing completed. It says, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. Okay, lesson number one. Lesson number one here. If someone wants to meet you in a place called Ono, don't go. It's a trap, okay? This is obvious. If someone's meeting you in a place called Ono, don't do it, okay? So come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. These guys are seeking to destroy the work of Nehemiah. Ultimately, they want to take Nehemiah's life. Ultimately, they want to see Nehemiah out of the picture so this project will end. They know, remember we talked about it before, but Jerusalem is to be a beacon. It's to be a beacon of the power and awesomeness of God. And the neighboring countries and the neighboring people realize they don't want to see this country rise up again. They don't want to see Jerusalem be great again because they know what it means for them. And so they are trying to thwart the plans. They are trying to end this project. And in doing that, right, they're going to start at the top. They're going to try to take out Nehemiah. So they're trying to get him to meet at this place. Let's get down there. Uh, They're going to take care of it. Then the fifth time, Sanballat sent his aid to me with the same message. And in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written. It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true, that you and the Jews are planning to revolt and therefore are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king, so let us confer together. Nehemiah trying to finish this this project. Opposition arises. They come to him with this message. He doesn't respond. So next thing, fifth time they come, and now there's this open letter. Now, here's what's significant about an open letter. is It's open. Anybody can read it. Okay, this isn't a message just directed at Nehemiah. They want the people to fear. They want the people to know what's going on. They want to intimidate, and they want to discourage the people of Jerusalem. So they send this letter to them, and it's a letter saying, okay, you know, people know, they can see you're trying to become great again. You're revolting against the king, and they remember their their not-so-distant past. They were exiles, okay? They were marched after Babylon. They were exiles there, and so the people probably realized this, probably remembered this. Oh, man, fearful. Is this going to happen again? Are they going to come back? Are are we really revolting against the king? Okay? So these guys want to drum up all this discouragement. They want to get people... Uh, kind of, kind of uh, discouraged about what is going on in this project that's not yet been, to, uh, yet been finished. And, and this is a great lesson for us. Because as we talk about, as we desire to follow God, as we desire to make an impact in the world around us, remember we talked about, hey, we want, we want to impact the 259,000. We want to impact our neighbor. We want to impact our family for the things of God. As we want to do that, there's going to be opposition there's going to be discouragement. You know, all, we had, uh, tw- I think there was 12 of you that went up last night, right? Or to the Rochester, 12 of you. So there's, there's, there was 12 women that went up this weekend. 
You know, and it's a time, as my wife shared with me last, time, last night, excited about what God had taught her, excited about what God was doing, excited about what she wanted to implement that she, now that she was back. Oftentimes in our life, when we get excited, I've had this in my life, when I've been passionate about the kingdom of God, or I, I said, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go do this for the kingdom of God. What happens? What happens? Discouragement can set in. The enemy wants to devour us. He'll distract us from what is really important. All of a sudden, all these things begin to happen, right? There's these letters that come on. Oh, you know, this project's not going to happen. Oh, you're revolting against the king. It's the same way in our lives. When we really want to pursue the things of God, when we really want to go and and make an impact for his kingdom, discouragement is going to set in. And this is going to be a challenge to us, is that when we want to pursue God and we want to make an impact for his kingdom, guys, Discouragement will happen. Trials, tribulations are going to come. And we come back from something like that or we get excited about something. You can can bet, you can bet that the enemy wants to do something about that. For some of us, you know, we may have a ministry at the church. God may be using something. We can get discouraged. Maybe people aren't getting involved as we had hoped they would. Or, Or we're trying to challenge our friends or our family members and they're not responding like we hoped we would. We want to share the message of who Jesus is and what he's done with a friend or a coworker, and they don't respond. And this discouragement can set in. And so the question then is, is not if it's going to happen, but how do we respond when it does happen? You know, we're going to get excited about something God has taught us this weekend, or we're going to get excited about what God wants to do in our life. So when discouragement rolls in and discouragement comes in, how do we respond? And I think Nehemiah gives us a great picture of that. He sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your mind. They were all trying to frighten us and thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, strengthen my hands. I love Nehemiah. I love his response throughout the book of Nehemiah. How much opposition does this guy take? I mean, look what he's done. This is a guy who was... Cupbearer, remember Mark told us, cupbearer to the king, all right? He was in a position of authority. He had the good life. Things were taken care of for him. Things were good. There was no reason to give that up, right? Obviously, there was. God was calling him to something more. God was calling him to something greater. And Nehemiah gives up a, a posh life to go and pursue the kingdom of God. And he gives up the kingdom to go to a place in rubble, to go to a place that needed work, to go to a place where people were going to oppose him, we're going to be up against him where people wanted to kill him. Gave up something great to do this. And he faces opposition time and time again. These guys come up. They want to take him. You know, there's people who want to come and they want to kill him. All these things are coming up against Nehemiah. And Nehemiah continually responds as a man of God should. And he continues. And you know what? No, you guys are making this up. We're going to continue to work on this. We're going to continue to rebuild this wall. And then, as he often does, verse 9, he says, but I prayed, now strengthen my hands. The example Nehemiah gives us throughout the book of Nehemiah is that he prays. Everything he does is first done in prayer. Go back to Nehemiah chapter 1. He gets this message. What do he do? He prays for several months, two or three months. He prays and he fasts, and then he goes to the king. And then when he's before the king, what does he do? While he's talking to the king, he prays. 
A couple weeks ago, Alan talked and challenged us with this idea that, you know, there's, there's opposition. They're coming to, to, to basically fight him. And what's he do? He prays, and then he acts. He puts the guard in place. And I loved what Alan challenged us with that week, is that, okay, it's, it's good. We need to pray. Nehemiah gives us that example. Obviously, Scripture points us that we need to be people of prayer, people before we do anything, spending time talking to God. But then he acts. He prays. And then he acts. If we want to see God move, if we want to see opposition thwarted, we pray and we act. If we want to see God provide for our family, would it make any sense that God provide for my family and then I never leave the house, I never do any work? If I want to see God save someone, if I want to see God rescue someone, and I prayed for this person, I think of my friend Andrew, I've prayed for my entire life. I pray for this person, pray for this person, and never share the message of who Jesus is, Kind of miss the point, don't I? If we pray for 259,000 people within a 10-mile radius that don't know Jesus, that are not involved in a church, and they make no plans to reach him, make no attempt to reach him, we miss the point, don't we? Nehemiah is a man who understands the power of prayer. And then he's also a man that knows he needs to act on that. And he gives us that example. They're all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work, and it will be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. Discouragement will come. Opposition will arise. That's the first point as we look here in Nehemiah chapter 6. There will be opposition. There will be difficulties. There will be trials and tribulations. That's not the question. The question is, do we respond like someone, like Nehemiah responds? The second thing we see is discredit. That as we pursue the kingdom, there'll be an attempt to discredit us. There is an attempt always to discredit the church, right? We're hypocrites. Uh, we, we don't love. You know, we, we're, we're near side. We don't, we, you know, we, don't, we don't care for the world. There's an attempt to discredit God and God's people all the time to discredit the church. We see that here in Nehemiah chapter 6. It says, one day I went to the house. I attempt to say these correctly. Shemaiah son of Deliah, and the son of Mahadabel, I'm not going to repeat him, who was shut in at his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and close the temple doors, because men are coming to kill you. By night, they are coming to kill you. Here is a man that he's shut in his house for some reason. He's probably got some disease, a sickness, or he's disabled in some way, can't leave his house. He's also a man who is probably a prophet, for some reason, Nehemiah is willing to meet with him. You remember guys like, uh, you know, Tobiah here and, and, and Sheshem and Sanballat, they, they, Geshem and Sanballat, they, he refused to meet him. Okay, but this guy, for some reason, Nehemiah is willing to go meet him. We, Nehemiah is willing to go into the house and have a conversation with him. So he had to have some sort of uh, impact. Or it may have been a prophet uh, probably in some way before. God had probably used him. Nehemiah meets with the guy. The guy tells him, hey, Run, go into the temple and hide. You read that, okay, that's not such a terrible idea, right? These guys are coming to kill me. To go hide in the temple might not be a bad idea. Might not be a bad thing. But Nehemiah knows something, doesn't he? Nehemiah is a man of God. Nehemiah knows scripture. Remember, you go back to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah is praying to God, and in his prayer, he reminds God of his promise for Jerusalem. He reminds God of that. 
Nehemiah knows Scripture. Nehemiah knows something here. Here is a guy who's seemingly a prophet, but trying to convince him to go into the temple and hide. Well, Nehemiah knows and understands the law. He understands that he's not a priest. He understands that the only people allowed into the temple of God are priests. So what this guy is telling him to do is against the law, against the law of God. This guy is trying to convince him to break God's commands. Here, here's, here's what's important. It's important, one, to know what Scripture says, and two, to act on it. We were talking in our small group a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about, you know, we have a church that seemingly a lot of people know a lot about Scripture. They have a good, good grasp of Scripture. But we wanted to challenge each other. It's not about what you know, in some sense, but what you do with what you know. Now, we always want to be people who continue to learn, continue to grow, to learn more, so we can obey more, so we can do more. But the point of Scripture is not knowledge. The point of Scripture is to obey. The point of Scripture is to get out and do. We want to be doers of the Word, not just hearers of the Word, not just people who spend time studying the Word. Those aren't bad things. Those are very good things. But what's bad is when we know what we're supposed to do and we don't do it. So we as a church want to challenge each other, grow, learn, study, know more. That's good. But what's even better is that when you learn that, you do it. You go out, you apply it, you live by it. And Nehemiah understood Scripture. Because he understood Scripture, he obeyed it. He knew it, he obeyed it. So many times you may hear someone, well, you know, God has told me this. God has has said this. And you've heard things, and I've heard from time to time, somebody will tell me something, I think God is telling me to do this. I'll say, yeah, but that contradicts Scripture. The Bible, I think, is very clear. What you're telling me you want to do is very against God's word. Yeah, but God is calling me to that. Well, let me tell you something. If God is telling you or somebody, as in the case of Nehemiah, is telling you to do something and the Bible says otherwise, it's not from God. It's very clear it is not from God. There are people that maybe even in the name of God come up with a word from God and, and may challenge you, encourage you in a certain way, but if it is not in Scripture or opposes Scripture... It is not from God. This guy here in the story of Nehemiah was a prophet, seemingly a man of God, seemingly a man who's had authority. And I would tell you, anybody, even somebody standing up here preaching and challenging you, man, you need to check it against what Scripture says. Because if it opposes this, it's not from God. And so Nehemiah, a man who who wants to pursue the kingdom of God, he knows Scripture, and he reacts to Scripture. And we see that here in, in, in verse Uh, 11. And so here's what he says. He says, but I said, should a man like me run away? I love that first response. Should I run away? Should I run away? Here's a guy, here's a leader who's on the front lines. Here's a guy who a couple weeks ago, he knew the enemy was there. He slept with a sword in his hand. He's not going to run. He's going to be on the front lines. I love that. I love that that quality about anybody, but especially a leader who's not only going to talk about it, he's going to do it. He was out there working on the wall. He's out there protecting the wall. This guy is not going to run. Should I run away? Or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this. And then they would give, him a, give me a bad name to discredit me. That was their goal. 
they wanted to discredit him because they knew the impact that he had on God's people. And so often, man, our enemy who wants to devour us wants to discredit us. And he'll use things in our life or, or he'll, he'll, he'll use people in our life that want to come after us, who oppose us, who want to discredit us. And Nehemiah gives us a great picture of a man who knew God, a man who knew God's word, and a man who responded properly, who responded in obedience. So the second thing we see is discredit. The final thing is dependence. Here's how it ends. He says, remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophets Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who have been trying to intimidate me. I love that. Here's a guy, what's he do? He prays, and he prays, God, you take care of my enemies. He's not going to fight his own battle. He's asking God to take care of it for him. People who oppose us, it, it is in our flesh, in our nature, that we want to fight back, right? We want to oppose them back. But remember who fights the battles for us. Remember who's in control. Nehemiah says, you, got, you, you take care of that. You take care of that. They oppose me, which means they oppose you. I am doing your work. They oppose you. You take care of it. I love his prayer there. Here's how it ends. So the wall was completed on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. The wall is completed in 52 days. It had been done. It had been ruined for 140 years. They've attempted it before. They've tried to do it. 140 years, it sits in ruins. And in 52 days, it's accomplished. 52 days. The gates, the walls, Jerusalem has been restored. And here it is. The the last verse I want to read to you. When all of our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of God. Isn't that awesome? The nations and the enemies around them realize that the only way this could have been done The only way this could have been accomplished, because God was in it. Here's what we can take heart in. You read through the first couple parts, and you hear the stories, and Nehemiah in chapter 4, 5, and 6, man, he's just being opposed. He gave up everything. Here he is, giving up everything, and he's opposed. And there's people after him. There's people who want to kill him. There's people that want to do all these things. When we pursue God and we hear things like, well, if you, if you follow the kingdom, it's going to be difficult. There will be trials, tribulations, and hard times. If you really chase after Jesus, things are not going to be easy. That's tough. That's hard. You know, we want life to, to not always be like that. We don't want to live in a press life. But here's, here's the awesome thing. And here is the truth of Scripture. Jesus says this in John 16, 33. He says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. These are the words of Jesus. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Isn't that awesome? That Jesus has overcome. And no matter what the trials, no matter what the tribulations, no matter the difficulties that arise, Jesus has overcome. The band is going to come back up, and we're going, to, we're going to remember and we're going to think about who Jesus is and what he has done. But know this, know this, as we pursue God, there will be trials. But Jesus has overcome. If there is sin in your life, 
If there are things you need to get right before God, know this. Jesus has overcome. Jesus has conquered death, sin, and hell for us. And I have no idea where you're at in your relationship with Jesus, but know this. He has overcome for you. He has overcome for you. Hebrews 14 through 16 says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in our time of need. Jesus has overcome. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? That no matter my difficulties, no matter my trials, no matter my tribulations, Jesus has overcome. No matter the sin that rules my life, whether it be addiction, you know, through drug or alcohol or pornography, whatever it is, Jesus has overcome. Jesus has been tempted, and Jesus has overcome. Take heart. I mean, this is awesome. This is awesome, an amazing thing, that the God of the universe would send his son Jesus to die for us, that the God of the universe would send Jesus to conquer death, sin, and hell, so we, me and you, may know what it is to live, so me and you may know what it is to overcome. Be assured, there will be trials, there will be tribulation, there will be disgrace, there there will be discredit, there will be discouragement, but Jesus has overcome. And this morning, we look to Jesus. And this morning, as we take the bread and the juice, we remember that Jesus has overcome. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for a story like Nehemiah. And though we can be discouraged as we look through it and realize and and think about all the discouragement and distractions that can come our way when we pursue you, we're reminded of the hope that we have, the hope of Jesus, that he has overcome. And God, there is no obstacle. There is no sin. There is no discouragement. There is no, no one who can discredit us because you have overcome. And in this world, as Jesus said, there will be trouble. But what, what a thing that the God of the universe gives, our son, gives his son to us. And Jesus has overcome for us. This morning, we want to remember you. We want to thank you for this gift of your son. We want to remember him in the bread and the juice, his body that was broken, his blood that was shed, and how he overcame death, sin, hell. He overcame all that, that, that went into his death on the cross. For me, for me, Jesus has overcome. We thank you for him. We thank you for what it means for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you.